Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we continue on into part two of two-part study through the first chapter of Genesis, really through chapter 1 all the way through verse 3 of chapter 2. Now, two weeks ago, we started this. We, we focused there on the structure of the passage, and then we interacted on some questions that often come up in, in seeking to understand this text. Questions like, should we think of these days as literal 24-hour days, or are they extended periods of time and questions along those lines? This morning, we'll leave those questions behind and focus completely on the text itself, seeking to understand what God wanted us to learn from this text and think about how it applies to our lives. In doing so, we are going to take our cues from the text, and so we're going to focus the lion's share of our time on the creation of mankind, which is the high point of this passage. Now, we could, of course, dig deeply into each individual day of creation and seek to understand all sorts of questions that might come up there, and I, and I trust that'd be fascinating, but I would submit to you that we would probably end up going beyond the intention of the text itself. I say that because, again, the point of this passage is to show us that God is the creator of all things and that man is the highest of his created order. And we are to glorify God by serving as His vice-regents on the earth, spreading His image across the entire globe. But in order to get there, we do need to spend time walking through the first five days because these were absolutely necessary to set the table for man to be able to live. So if you're not already there, I do invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we said that God is a very purposeful designer. This is certainly evident when we look at the world around us. We know, for instance, that if the sun was any further away, if Earth's orbit was just a little bit different, if the galaxy itself was set up just a tiny bit differently, this world wouldn't be a hospitable place for us to live. Uh, we, we know for example, we need air to breathe and water to drink and light to see, and all of that 
is present for us. And we see this purposefulness of God's design in the creation narrative here in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We read that in its initial state, the earth was formless and void. And we said that formless and void is the foil by which Moses constructs the rest of the narrative. The last time we saw that in the six days of creation, God takes this world that's originally formless and void, and He he forms it. He forms it in the first three days of creation, and then He fills it in the second three days of creation. And all of this He does, but by His Word. The text and commentary of this text that you find throughout the rest of the Bible make it clear that God did not reach down and use matter that was already there. He simply spoke and created the world out of nothing. On day one, God spoke and light came into existence. We know light is essential to life. Light is essential to the world as we know it. And thus, on the first day, as God's forming the earth, getting it ready to be inhabitable, He commands, let there be light. And there was light. Now, those who know Genesis 1 know that God doesn't create the sun, moon, and the stars until day four. And that troubles some people. But If we knew our Bibles better, I would submit to you that it wouldn't trouble us at all. It would cause us to be all the more inspired by our Lord. See, when we turn to the book of Revelation, we see that in the new heaven and new earth, the very place creation itself is moving, the place Christians will dwell for all eternity. And there, we see that for all eternity, there will be no sun or moon, for God will be our light. I invite you to flip from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Turn over to Revelation 21 real quickly to see what I'm talking about. Revelation 21, I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. Here the Apostle John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, even in the creation account itself, the Bible is casting our gaze forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Thus, for the first three days in creation, however you take them, 24-hour days or periods of time, God Himself provides all the light that is needed. And as He does throughout the creation account, 
He separates various things. Here he separates light from darkness, and he names them, demonstrating his sovereign dominion over them. And God declares that it's good. There was evening and there was morning the first day. By the way, don't miss the fact that this whole account is giving us a God-centered worldview. It should lead us to say, along with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. So day one, God creates light and separates it from darkness, a vital part of forming the earth, getting it ready to be inhabitable. And day two, He continues this forming. In day two, God speaks again, creating the sea and the sky. And we should note that the description of these things is phenomenological, not scientific. In other words, they're, they're, they're describing how they appear to us, and this shouldn't cause us any problems because even in our scientific day and age, we do this all the time. I, I for one, keep up with the weather. And it doesn't matter if I'm looking at my weather app on my phone or watching the weather on the news. I have never once read or heard anything about the rotation of the earth. It simply tells me what time the sun's going to rise and what time the sun's going to set. And God accommodates Himself to us like that here as well. And so here, just as God separated light from darkness in day one, here He separates waters from the waters, creating what we would call the heavens or the sky. Ken Matthews in his commentary says, quote, the expanse is the atmosphere that distinguishes the surface waters of the earth, i.e. the waters below, from the atmospheric waters or clouds, i.e. the waters above, end quote. If you recall, we're in the, the forming phase, the first three days of creation. And we know that the purpose of this description is here so that on the corresponding day five, we, we see that God will fill that expanse with the birds, and He's going to fill the waters with the fish. What's more, it's worth pointing out that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is making it clear to his original readers just how different God is than all of the false gods of the people they lived around. Remember, the people of Israel are given the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis included. They're given these books after being exiled in Egypt. And when they're given these books, they would have been very clear of what others around them believed. And so, in the Egyptian creation account, for example, because remember, they're coming out of Egypt, the Egyptian creator God uses pre-existent waters which was actually a personification of another god, and this is what he uses to create the universe. Here, in direct juxtaposition to that, God, speaking through his prophet Moses, makes it clear the one true living God simply spoke. He spoke, and he created the waters, the sky, indeed every single thing there is. Day three. On the third day, God continues His forming of the earth, making it hospitable for life as He creates dry land and all the plants that will serve as food. But we're given a hint here that the whole narrative is pointing to the creation of man, with man as the pinnacle of God's creation. And given that day three corresponds to day six when God will create mankind, we see God speak twice here in day three, just like He'll do on day six, the only two days He does that. 
Here, God says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. So, so he separates dry ground where his people would dwell from the waters, and we're told that it's good. Like we saw earlier, God names the dry ground and the waters, again, demonstrating his sovereign rule over these things. Remember, this is the God who asked Job, who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling brands and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. See, this, this whole narrative is demonstrating God's sovereign dominion over every part of His creation. And in particular, it shows us that He's making a joyous, perfect place where He could dwell with His people. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 2. God's not done with the third day. As I already mentioned here, He speaks twice. And in His last work of getting the earth ready for life, He speaks again, commanding vegetation to come about that would feed all of His living creatures. So, so God forms the earth in the first three days, and now on to the next three, we see that He begins to fill it. Day one, God called light to come about out of the darkness. Now in the corresponding day four, God speaks again and places the sun, moon, and the stars in their place. And notice that the text doesn't use the name sun or moon. Most scholars argue that this is because God has inspired Moses to elucidate the complete holiness, the complete otherness of the one true God. Again, in other religions of the ancient Near East, various elements of nature were thought to be gods. And thus, in Egypt, where God's people had been the last 400 years, the gods Ra and Thoth were personified in the sun and the moon. Here, however, Scripture is crystal clear. They're not gods. They're mere lights, a greater light and a lesser light, and they both do God's bidding. He created them by His Word, and they do precisely what He commanded them to do. God wanted His people to have days and weeks to be able to mark out seasons, to know when the Sabbath and various festivals were to take place, and thus He creates the sun and the moon to do precisely that. And like I said last time, we see the power of God here. I mean, just think how massive and powerful the sun is. <laughs> and God spoke, and there it was. Or again, the billions upon billions of stars, spoken of here almost as an afterthought. He made the sun, the moon, and oh yeah, He sort of flicks the stars into their precise place. So, God's world, His, his temple, as it were, we'll talk more on that in chapter 2, his world would operate precisely in accordance with His marvelous plan. Now, before we move on from here, I do think there's application right on the surface of this text. I mean, when we look at God's creation, we should praise God for His creativity 
And and the fact that he would do all of this, because as John Piper likes to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God created the world for his glory and for our joy, and those two are not mutually exclusive. We, We can praise him for that. When, when, when you set your eyes on a sunset, when you see a glorious mountain, when you stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon or watch waves crashing onto a rocky beach, it should cause us to rejoice in God who spoke and made all of that so that we might get just a glimpse of His glory. Day five. Day five, God speaks in the waters swarm with living creatures, and the birds take to the air. Our inspired writer tells us that God created all of the fish and all of the birds according to their kinds. Now, I find Ken Matthews helpful here. He says that kind is used for broad categories of animals, birds, and fish. He says any attempt to correlate kind with a modern term such as species is unwarranted, though the awareness of distinctive kinds is closer to a scientific description than is found in pagan cosmogonies. Just as separations are integral to creation, so are distinctions among living beings as indicated by their kinds. Creation and procreation according to kind indicates that God has established parameters for creation, end quote. So here in dealing with living, breathing animals, The creativity of our glorious Creator shines all the more. I mean, just think for a minute about some birds. I'm a duck hunter, so I'm fascinated by wild ducks. Not to be confused with the white ducks swimming around your pond, but wild ducks are amazing. They are gloriously arrayed in splendid colors, and and they, they fly south for the winter to a very specific location, and then they turn around and they go home to the exact same location every single year. We've tracked them. We know they do this. Or or hummingbirds that can hover midair with their wings beating some 50 times per second. Or, Or you think about amazing sea creatures with vast differences of shapes and sizes and stunning arrays of colors. You might think of what the text calls the great sea creatures a word used by others in ancient Near East to depict dragons, a word sometimes used to depict sharks or crocodiles, a word some think probably refers to some of the extinct dinosaurs. T.D. Alexander notes, quote, this word is used in the Canaanite literature to portray a great dragon as the enemy of the main fertility god of Baal. Genesis, he says, depicts God as creating large sea creatures, but they are not in rebellion against Him. He is sovereign and is not in any kind of battle to create the universe, end quote. Again, we might think of God's Word to Job when he asked, hey, Job, can you draw out the Leviathan, another name for a great sea creature? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take as your servant forever? Will you play with him as you play with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traitors bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again, end quote. Well, Job might not. 
and we certainly won't. And yet Genesis makes it clear, all of the animals are God's creation, and they do His bidding. They do precisely what they were created to do. In fact, He commands them to be fruitful and multiply as reproductive beings. They're blessed by God here and commanded to reproduce so that the air and the waters would always be full as they are to this day, which leads us right to day six. The whole creation narrative has been pointing us here. The whole forming and filling has been getting us ready for this day, this day when God would fill the land, specifically when He would fill the land with His own image. Here again, God speaks twice. First, He speaks creating all the land animals according to their kinds, and then He speaks again creating mankind. Look back at verse 24. With regards to the animals, we read, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. The animals mentioned here are in three broad groupings. The text tells us that he creates livestock, and these are your animals that would be domesticated, so animals like cattle and sheep and goats, probably your horses and camels would be here. He creates what the text calls creeping things, which are probably your small crawling animals, ranging from mice to lizards to insects. And then your third grouping are your wild animals like deer, and bear, the great cats, lions, and tigers. And again, the text tells us that it was all good. All of God's creation was exactly how He intended it to be. And now we're ready for the creation of mankind. Peter Gentry, in a very helpful journal article, lists ten different reasons day six should be seen as set apart as the most important day, and that the creation of mankind should be seen as the very pinnacle of God's creation. And I won't go through all ten, but he cites things such as the length of the description of the creation of mankind, the change in writing style describing this day, and the fact that man and woman are created in the image of God, and that mankind is commanded to serve as God's vice regents on the earth. With regards to the change in style, we see that God speaks, but this time in the first person plural. Up to this point, the words of creation have been spoken in the third person. Here, however, God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And, and however you take that let us and the our, you can't help but notice there's something different here. And much ink's been spilled on the meaning of the plural here. Some argue that the text is just using a plural of majesty, just as the Queen of England might speak of herself in the plural. Others assert that God is speaking to the angels, the, the heavenly court. But this hardly seems possible, for theologically you cannot say that we're made in the image of the angels, or that the angels took part in the creation of the world. And many Christians, myself included, believe this is the first hint that our God is a Trinitarian God, something that becomes quite clear as you go on in the further unfolding of Holy Scripture. And against this, some argue that Moses and his original hearers would have never understood the text this way, so that can't be what it means, but I personally think that is a taking of the idea of authorial intent a little too far. See, understanding as we do that each text has two authors, right? The divinely inspired human author and the God who inspired it, 
I certainly believe that God can lead a human author to speak better than he knows or better than he understands, which is what I think is going on here with the shift to the plural. This, of course, becomes more clear when we read individual books of the Bible canonically, right? When we read the Bible as one grand narrative, as we have to do. And so, for example, when we read Genesis 1 in light of John 1, John 1 we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And you read on in John 1, and you realize, oh, that's Jesus, God the Son, Thus, reading Genesis 1 canonically, when God says, let us make man in our image and likeness, we can read, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image and likeness. And again, we see the uniqueness of mankind in God's creation here for none of the other animals, not the fish, not the birds, not the beast, not even your favorite dog is said to be made in the image of of God that is reserved only for mankind. So we need to have some understanding of what he means here, as it's very important to our understanding of this passage and indeed the rest of the Bible. Entire volumes have been written on what it means for man to be made in the image of God, much of which is nothing short of conjecture. It's often said that some of the qualities that set man apart from other species must be what it means to be in the image of God. And so, things like the ability to reason, the ability to talk, our creativity, our sense of morality, even though that sense of morality was marred by the fall. And all of that's possible, but just note that that is not explicit to the text. Uh, Others say, well, it could be that we're relational, right? You have the switch from the From the third person to the plural here, let us. So God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's existed in perfect fellowship among Himself from eternity past. And He says, let us make man in our own image. And God has created us. As He's created us in His image, He created us to enjoy fellowship with Him and with one another in a way that is unique of all creation. I do think there's truth in these things, especially this idea of relational. But, But... What is most important in thinking through this idea of image and likeness is to follow the flow of the text. And when we follow the flow of Genesis 1, the clearest thing we can say about our being made in the image of God is that we alone of all creation are commanded to rule over God's creation. It's the mandate in 126. And again in 128, look, look, look back at the text. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image, and in the image of God He created him, male and female He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, this idea of image and likeness 
is tied to our understanding of how we are to relate to God and to His creation. Namely, we were created to relate to God as sons. And as sons, those made in His image, we are to serve as His representatives. And here, without getting into all the minutiae, Moses is almost certainly using the words image and likeness in a way that would have been quite familiar to his ancient Near Eastern readers. And in the ancient Near East, if a king erected an image of himself in a region, it stood as a symbol of his rule, that his rule had come to that region. Here then, as this is applied to mankind, this means we are called to be God's representative in the whole world. Stephen Dempster in his excellent book, Dominion and Dynasty, says, quote, The male and female as king and queen of creation are to exercise rule over their dominion, the extent of which is the entire earth, end quote. See, pre-fall, we were to spread the image of God across the entire globe by means of procreation, and we were to rule the earth as God's vice regents. We were to be so God-centered, so God-focused that our purpose in life was spreading His image all over the world and governing the world in such a way that God's will would be done and God would be glorified, which, by the way, has massive implications as to the failure of Adam when we come to chapter 3. As the one called to have dominion over the world for God's glory, he should have driven out the unclean serpent from God's garden. See, right here at the beginning of the Bible, Moses is showing us who we are in relation to God, sons and daughters, and what our role is in these lives he's given us, vice regents called to rule under God. We're not God. We're not little gods. Don't be, don't be fooled. But we are called to rule under God. And biblically speaking, I would argue that is the main emphasis of man as God's image and likeness. Tom Schreiner in his biblical theology titled The King and His Beauty says, quote, the importance of human beings created in God's image can scarcely be exaggerated. God is the sovereign creator who extends his kingship over the whole world, but he extends his rule through human beings. For as God's image bearers, they must govern the world for God's glory and honor. End quote. And again, we're going to see in a few weeks that man failed. And I'm going to wrap back around to this in just a minute, but for now it's important that we see how this is also tied to the theme of God's rest on the seventh day, and that this text has its start and its end with God. Yes, we might be the pinnacle of His creation, but all of His creation is for Himself. God creates everything out of nothing. On the first three days, He masterfully forms the world so that it can maintain life. Then on the second three days, he creates all of life, noting how good it is all the way through. And then he creates mankind in his own image to govern the world for his glory. And then he steps back and says, ah, yes, it is all very good. And as he looks upon his very good creation, every single thing according to plan, on the seventh day, the number of completion and perfection on the seventh day our great creator king rests. Look back at the text. 
starting at the end of chapter 1, verse 31. God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. We need to be clear, God doesn't rest because He's exhausted from His creation. He's not like Yoda who has to work really hard to do something amazing and then he's just spent. Right? No, the inspired text goes to great lengths to demonstrate the effortless ease with which God created. Remember, this is the God who spoke and made the sun, moon, and oh yeah, billions of stars. Moreover, God's rest does not mean that He's not been working since the creation of the world. In a heated debate with the Jews after healing someone on the Sabbath, Jesus said, my Father has been working up until now, and I have been working. God's been working out all of His good plans, providentially governing the world and redeeming a people for Himself even before the foundation of the world. Now, some say that God resting on the seventh is primarily for the purpose of establishing an example of six days of work for His people, and then to rest on the seventh. And that's certainly part of it. It's an implication. The text says God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And then that becomes clear as you get further along in the inspired narrative. And our resting replicates that rest of God. But from a big picture theological standpoint, this is a type. And there's much more at stake here. God's rest indicates that He is now reigning over His very good creation for the good of His people. And this theme of God's rest plays a major role in the overarching storyline of the Bible. T.D. Alexander captures this nicely when he says, quote, "...the motif of God's resting hints at the very purpose of creation." As reflected in various Near Eastern accounts, divine rest is associated with temple building. God's purpose for the earth is that it should become His dwelling place. It is not simply made to house His creatures. God's activities on this day, finished, rested, made it holy, all fit this delightful pattern. The concept of the earth as a divine sanctuary, which is further developed in chapter 2, runs throughout the whole Bible, coming to a climax in the future reality that the Apostle John sees in his vision of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21, end quote. See, this theme of God's rest ultimately points to refreshment and joy that can only be found in His presence. And this is the eternal refreshment and joy because the seventh day never ends. And and all of this is hinted at, at Israel's rest on the Sabbath. It's hinted at in the book of Joshua where we see God's people enjoying rest from their enemies when they come into the land, but all of that is pointing ahead. And the writer of the book of Hebrews picks up on all of this when you come to Hebrews chapters 3 through 4. There he quotes from Psalm 95, which is actually picked up Deuteronomy 12, which makes it clear that the people of Israel have not yet entered God's rest, which in the first instance was the land, but the writer of Hebrews makes it clear the land is pointing to the land, the new heaven and new earth, 
and eternity with God. See, it's this rest and our joining God in His rest. And it's all about salvation. It's all about resting in God. God in complete control over His enemies and we being in a state of rest, resting with our High King. Thus Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, you currently know nothing of this rest, but you are invited into it even today. When we get to Genesis 3 in a couple of weeks, we're going to see Adam and Eve sin, and thus sin enters into the world. Death and judgment enter into the world, and all of Adam's posterity, all of us follow him in his sin, and thus all of us deserve God's judgment for our sin. Because of sin, we were cut off, as it were, from resting in God. But Jesus came, the perfect image of God. And He went to the cross so sinners like us could find rest in God for all eternity. So friend, if you've never trusted in Christ, I would plead with you, look to Jesus even today. Well, I want to go back ever so briefly and wrap up with the mandate of 128 and think about some application because 128 is picked up throughout the rest of the Bible. So look back at the text one more time. Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. If we understand Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 biblically, that is, from a whole Bible standpoint, we can say, we must say, that our whole lives are to be all about telling people about this rest and playing the role God has called us to play in spreading His image across the globe. See, as the crown of God's creation, we were created, as Stephen Dempster put it, to stamp God's own image into the very heart of the created order, end quote. But of course, we know there was a problem, and that problem is seen in Genesis 3. Man sinned. Adam and Eve did not subdue the earth and have proper dominion over it. They did not, as they're commanded in chapter 2, work the garden and guard the garden. And thus, the image of God was marred by the fall. And in and of ourselves, now what unregenerate people spread throughout the world is not the perfect image of God. It is actually sin, as you see throughout the rest of the narrative. The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, came, and as the New Testament makes clear, was the perfect image of God. He succeeded where Adam and Eve failed, where Israel failed, where the Davidic monarchy failed, where all of us failed. And thus, it's through the Lord Jesus that the world would be ruled for the glory of God. And interestingly, and very helpful for us, the New Testament writers pick up on this with the spreading of the gospel. 
with the spreading of the good news of Jesus. Greg Beale helped me see this in his excellent book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. In Colossians 1, for example, Paul thanks God that the gospel has been bearing fruit and increasing, bearing fruit and increasing among the Colossians, just as the gospel is doing, he says, all over the world. I see that's the same language as Genesis 1.28, where he commands us to be fruitful and multiply, to bear fruit and increase. And of course, you have to read being fruitful and multiplying of Genesis 1.28 in light of Genesis 1.27, where God says that He created man in His own image. And thus, the mandate of Genesis 1 is to fill the whole earth with people made after the image of God. And so, we can say that the New Testament is making it clear that a vital part of fulfilling this original mandate is that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby men and women will be renewed in knowledge after the image of their Creator. So says Paul in Colossians 3. And this idea is certainly seen all over the book of Acts. In Acts 6-7, for instance, there's almost this personification of the Word of God. We read that the Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. And again, there's this bearing fruit and multiplying of the gospel. The Word of God's bearing fruit and the disciples, those being recreated into the image of God, are multiplying. Again, in Acts 12, 24, we read the Word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19, we're told that the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And thus we see that the New Testament writers see this original mandate of Genesis 1 being fruitful and multiplying, filling the whole earth with people after God's own image. The New Testament teaches us that this is ultimately not fulfilled simply in procreation, but in and through second birth through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through the gospel bearing fruit and multiplying that this mandate is fulfilled. And so, brothers and sisters, if we want to be about the mission of God that you see in Genesis 1, reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 28, if we want to truly honor our great Creator God, if we want to glorify the Lord Jesus, then we want to be about His work, stamping His image all over creation as we tell our friends our neighbors, our co-workers, anyone who will listen about our glorious God and plead with them to enter into His rest. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You don't leave us to guess about who you are. You don't lead us to guess about who we are and what you've called us to do. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be a faithful people. Lord, we want to be about the work of spreading your image all over the world, and so we ask for your help in that. Father, Lord, help us to be the church that you've called us to be, for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.